0: Tell me on, is there anything good to be said about mosquitoes?
1: There's loads of good to be said about mosquitoes. They're a food source for bats and birds and insects and reptiles, frogs. They pollinate, they pollinate all sorts of orchids and general flowers. Um, the larvae live in water, so fish eat them. Um, what do you call a funny mosquito? I don't know. What do you call a funny, funny mosquito? Malarious. <laughs> <laughs> There's loads of bad to be said about mosquitoes too. Okay, go. Um, they bite you. The, the males don't bite you. The women bite you. And why don't the males bite you? Ah, that are lazy. Lazy, just hang around and. Watch of course it. they are. Yeah, but the women they need to lay their eggs. They hibernate as well. The women. They, okay. So. So they're looking for for protein, I imagine. They're looking for protein to make the eggs and lay them, and then they go to the tree and they hibernate for the winter. Um, They spread disease as well. They cull the population. They're responsible for malaria, Zika. um,
0: And they've they've killed half of all humanity ever. About 50 billion people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. and, and you were talking about the the Zika virus. Yeah. Um, going going back to the the Zika outbreak in Brazil of 2015, 2016. Yeah, they were talking about cancelling the Olympics. Yeah, crazy, crazy. Um, but yeah, I remember they wanted to
1: eradicate mosquitoes completely. <laughs> is, is, is is that practical? Terrible idea. I think like you stop you getting bit. Might stop you getting the Zika virus, but if you kill a if you kill a mosquito, you're going to kill a bird, and if you're going to kill a bird, you're going to kill a snake, and if you kill a snake, you're going to kill a crocodile. Yeah, like. of course, it has a knock-on effect for the ecosystem. Yeah, the butterfly effect or something—is that what it's called? Something like that. Yeah, um, but you never know. There might be something. There might be something in their DNA. There might be something in their genetic makeup that might turn up with a new drug for treating cancer or AIDS or something. Yeah, something that we're currently unaware of. Something we don't know, yeah.
0: Hello. Welcome. This is the first ever episode of the China Podcast. We are your hosts. Yes, we are. My name is Eric. And my name is Owen. And we're coming to you from Chongqing, Chongqing. in the southwest of southwest China.
1: Of China. And we're mad excited for this, aren't we, Owen? Oh, we are, yeah. We've been talking about this for quite a long time. It's good to be finally doing it.
0: Yeah, and it's been a a few months in the making, Mm. but we're here now. We are. We've got it all together, finally. Um, Now, we both hail from the same corner of Ireland, give or take a few miles and a county border in between.
1: And we both grew up by the sea. Do you miss the sea, Owen? I do. I'm, I I miss the sea a lot. I miss um, the sound of ropes, hidden masts. I, rem- I miss the sound of the shore, and I miss horizons more than anything. I miss horizons. Yeah, yeah.
0: we don't have many horizons here in in Chongqing. Yeah, our hori not not uh, a flat
1: horizon. No. No. no, our horizon is a mountain. We're we're kind of in a depression surrounded by mountains. We can see cones, basically cones. Yeah, it's
0: like loads of cutting, ice creams cutting into the into the sunset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, yeah, no flat horizons, yeah. and it's been it's been a, a couple of years since I've seen a, a horizon. Last time was in Ireland, back home. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, and of course, we're a long bloody way from the sea right now. We're, we're almost around. two two thousand kilometers. Yeah, we're landlocked. Yeah, we're a long way away. But amazingly enough, there exists in Chongqing a French naval barracks. And we were there recently, and we plan to talk about it later. But first, let's explain why in the hell we began this podcast discussing mosquitoes. Well, you see, in Chongqing, or rather China as a whole, they are everywhere during the summer months, and they're even prevalent as late as September or early October. And they're a bloody nuisance, as Owen mentioned earlier. They're a first world problem. Yeah, I, I had a mosquito flying around my head uh, earlier this week. Yeah, what I was you? I was in the bed.
1: Yeah,
0: and you know the way you can hear it Bzzz, yeah, buzzing yeah, around yeah. Your, your head. The worst. The worst we are in the last week of October. Yeah, they are still here.
1: Yeah, the worst is when they land on your ear and you slap your head. Not it's a good idea. It. No it's not
0: Absolutely not a good
1: idea no. um, They're desperate They're desperate at this time of the year They're, they're bloody desperate Yeah because they're dying out Yeah the, the, the women need to lay their eggs And they need that protein And they just want to do their final bits and pieces and, and, and get over the line you know
0: Make hay for next year
1: Make hay for next year exactly yeah
0: So let's switch the focus now purely to Chongqing Isn't it a fantastic city On
1: Oh it's amazing it's amazing. It's huge. Um, it's a huge, huge... Metropolis. Metropolis. Um, it it kind of looks like the movie Blade Runner. Um, it's a cyberpunk city, isn't it? It is a cyberpunk city. It has a purpley-orange glow late at night. Um, it's quite dark when you're walking along your average street. And then shop fronts they just pop out at you. They're very bright it's a very compact city yeah there's lots of there's a light show and stuff down by the river and you know every night and you know typical of Chinese cities it's a it's very cyberpunk it's very Blade Runner futuristic look and
0: we're going to actually talk about that in a future episode uh, which I can't wait for
1: yeah
0: Um, yeah tell me more tell me more
1: Hot Pot Hot Pot that's the big thing about Chongqing is hot pot everybody goes and eats hot pot is it fair
0: to say that Chongqing alongside Chengdu in the neighbouring Sichuan province is they're probably the two hot pot capitals of
1: of China if not the world It is. it is there's two types of hot hot pot there's the northern hot pot which is a bit sour and then the southern hot pot which is mala yeah we're talking spice right yeah numb spice um, it's it's so hot it numbs your mouth. Uh, the Sichuan peppercorn, prickly ash. If you want to buy it in a supermarket outside of China, um, it has a monorail. Has a monorail just like the Simpsons. Yeah, and it's a, it's bloody incredible. Oh, it's massive. It's huge. Um, it, it covers a vast distance and it's quick. It's cheap. It's convenient goes right through the centre of the city we've got eight lines eight eight metro
0: li- lines I counted them you counted them in, in Chongqing but there's another one to come another one or two
1: yeah there's a, they'll keep building oh absolutely yeah I know there's some lines that aren't they're only partially opened that's right yeah um, there's a couple of bridges that need to be built um, to link up some lines and I think I don't think they'll stop I think they'll just keep going um it, it, the city just seems to keep expanding. expanding. Yeah. Um It was the capital of, of China during the Second World War, during the Sino-Japanese War, um, which was part of the bigger Second World War. Um, started in 37, not 39. This is when the, the Japs invaded. Yeah, the Japanese went... Well, the Japs had invaded much earlier, but when the Japanese crossed the Marco Polo Bridge... Oh, all right. Okay. Yeah, they they thought they'd take advantage of, of, I suppose, a fractured China. Mm. What we would, what you would call it back then. Um, so when they crossed the Marco Polo Bridge, that's when, that's when everything really started to kick off. You can go back even further to nineteen thirty one, but, um, you know, it it you are talking how long is a piece of string, um, because that Sino Japanese War wasn't the first one. Um, there are many um, on a different note there's it's a big city with, with, with two rivers so one river the Jaling is a tributary of the Yangtze the Yangtze is um, it's the third longest river in the world um, and it kind of makes it kind of makes the whole city a bit foggy so yeah. it's, a, it's yeah. actually a foggy city um very foggy today actually, as
0: we're recording. yeah, it's pretty foggy. Um, um, and we were down by the Yangtze River uh, very recently, yeah, we in were. search of a disused French naval barracks, which was quite intriguing because we wondered why a French naval base existed in Chongq in China, so far inland from the sea. Now we're talking almost two thousand kilometers from Chongqing to the mouth of the Yangtze River in Shanghai yeah so what we did we took the metro to nanan district which is in the south side of the city now it was a quite soft day wasn't it on it was there was a bit of rain a bit of rain wasn't too bad not so many people about no not so many i had my xiaomi umbrella with me uh xiaomi if you don't already know is one of the main mobile phone manufacturing companies in china Uh, They also make other gadgets and gizmos,
1: even nail clippers, isn't that right? It is, I have a pair of nail clippers. I have a a voice-activated clothesline. Now that's random. It is a bit random. Pretty normal in China. Anyway, we found the barracks located in
0: close proximity to the river, only separated by a road. It, now it's typically colonial in appearance, with some Chinese characteristics, mainly the traditional entrance gate, which features big red doors and a wood-carved roof. And it was it's quite well preserved for a building that's more than one hundred years old. Now we couldn't get inside, unfortunately, because they were doing some maintenance work by the looks of it. But there were a few a few plaques of information on the curbing on the street outside, but none of them answered for us the why. Why a French naval barracks in Chongqing? We weren't satisfied, so we had to do a little bit of digging. And a story we discovered involves opium, colonial powers and their relationship with the Qing dynasty, the younger
1: brother of Jesus Christ, and a whole load of ropes. (laughs) So, we'll start with opium, and a quick shit on colonial Britain. Now,
0: now let's... uh, we must emphasize here,
1: the colonial. Oh yeah, the colonial in yeah. Britain.
0: I, Be- like yeah, I, I, li- I like the British. Yeah, I like the British too. I think for now, for for Irish people, which we are, uh, we have a, a history. Our country yeah. has a history with Britain. We on a personal note, don't don't. No. Um, I think it's fair to say that any issue that Irish people or the Iri- the, the Irish country has with with Britain is probably. Mostly to do with the Tory Party, probably,
1: yeah, and
0: imperialism in general.
1: That's true. That's very yeah. true. Because we suffered at the hands of it all. Yeah, we suffered, and and there, there, there were no good real. There were no really good imperial powers. Nothing like, good comes from came, drum, came from that that no that nothing, e- came, that era. nothing good came from it. A lot of lot of looting. Yeah, the the Germans, the Belgians, the French Portuguese, Spanish the, Yeah, there were none of them were any good, you know, when there were the colonial powers tended to take advantage of of situations to further their own gains. Absolutely.
0: Now let's explain what opium is and why it was such a hot topic during this period of history. Well, essentially, opium is a narcotic drug taken from the unripened seed pods of the opium poppy. The trade of opium developed in the 18th and 19th centuries, in which colonial powers, mostly Great Britain, exported opium grown in India and sold it to China. The biggest player in all this was the British East India Company, which had established a monopoly on opium cultivation in the Indian province of Bengal. So, Why the trade of opium? Well, because of the European country's chronic trade imbalance with China. What do I mean by a trade imbalance? Well, during this time, there was a tremendous demand in Europe for Chinese luxuries, such as tea and silks and porcelain pottery. But on the flip side, there was very little interest in China for European goods. Opium was the answer and the colonial powers, or rather Britain in particular, were willing to do everything they could to change this. But the biggest obstacle was the Qing dynasty. They had banned the importation, the sale and cultivation of opium. Yet a way was found around the ban and the opium trade still flourished in that opium was sold to smugglers along the Chinese coast in return for gold and silver. One of the major smuggling players in all this was Jardine Madison and Company, which operated out of
1: Hong Kong and sold opium right across the lower Yangtze region of China. So the Jardine Madison Company, well, the East India Company had most of the trade coming out of uh, Southeast Asia and China. But the Jardine Madison Company, they were pretty big players. They were based in Hong Kong and they wanted to expand the opium trade into China. Um, And they, they were pretty bullish about it. They petitioned the Queen for war um the war against the chinese they kind of forced them into accepting uh opium being legal or at least accepting the trade in opium okay um there were, there were incidents where one in particular um there were five sailors who who beat a local man to death um and they were brought back to their their boat and they were given fines and they were told that they would be imprisoned when they went back to England. They went back to England and nothing happened. Um, and the Chinese saw this as a kind of a, a, a disrespect to their sovereignty. Um, so the Chinese embargoed the English and they wouldn't allow them to trade in the ports. So the, one, one day they went into the port and they weren't allowed in. Um, push comes to shove and a, and a gunfight started. And Jardine Matheson had what they wanted, which was the start of the first opium war. Um, the Jardine Matheson Company ended up becoming the first company registered on the Bund in Shanghai. Um, which, if you know the Bund in Shanghai, it's yeah, it's it's pretty much the tourist place to go. Um, comp- the foreign company number one registered there was the Jardine Matheson Company.
0: Okay, very interesting. Um- So what were the consequences of the opium trade? Well, first, the British used their profits from the sale of opium to get all their tea and silk and porcelain and so on. But what it meant for the Qing dynasty and the Chinese people was widespread addiction, which in turn led to social and economic problems in China. Secondly, because of Chinese enforcement efforts on opium and the Western power's carefree response to those efforts, two armed conflicts known as the Opium Wars, broke out. China lost them both, leading to the Qing Dynasty's gradual decline in favour of Republican China in the early 20th century. But that's a whole other discussion. Now, during the mid-19th century, a treaty was signed in Tianjin between the Qing Dynasty and the foreign powers, which closed the first phase of the Second Opium War between 1856 and
1: 1860. Now, it's a, one very important thing there is that there was a previous treaty, uh, the Treaty of Nanjing, which was in 1843. And the Treaty of Nanjing opened up the ports of Shanghai, Guangzhou, Fuzhou and Xiamen for, tra- for trade, basically. Um, and companies like the Jardine Matheson Company, they were selling opium to smugglers who were in turn selling it to the Chinese population, despite it being illegal. Um, The locals didn't like this at all. And there were a number of rebellions. There was the Miao Rebellion, there was the Dungan Revolt, and then there was the biggest of them all, which was the Taiping Rebellion. Um, And they started in the aftermath of the First Opium War. Um, In the Second Opium War, towards the end, was the Treaty of Tianjin. And in the Treaty of Tianjin, it further expanded... The treaty ports to be to include Tainan, Haikou, Shantou, Haicheng, Penglai, Tamsui. The British didn't like Haicheng and Penglai, they said they weren't acceptable. So they opened up two more, which was the Yantai and Yinko ports, and in theory, Nanjing.
0: Now, Owen has touched on the, the Treaty of Tianjin. And the Treaty of Tianjin allowed for the opening of 11 new Chinese ports to foreigners. Uh, it also authorised foreign delegations in Beijing, as well as the activities of Christian missionaries. And, perhaps most importantly, in the eyes of the Western parties, it legalised the importation of opium. So, the ports that were opened were known as Treaty Ports, where the colonial powers could establish base and trade from. But there was a little twist in the tail some ports that were exempt from the treaty due to civil conflict. Can you tell us more about that, Own and more specifically, I suppose, about a, a fella who was a little bit of a nutcase, to put it mildly?
1: Yeah. So, in theory, the port of Nanjing was opened by the Treaty of Tianjin, as were Wuhan and Zhejiang, which brings the the total to the number you stated. Um, and one of the rebellions that previously, that I previously mentioned, the Taiping Rebellion. Have you, did you hear of that before you came to China? I've never heard of the Taiping Rebellion. Right, no. so the Taiping Rebellion um, was one of the biggest wars in human history. Um, there were 30 million people dead and 30 million people displaced. And the war affected everywhere. The entire country except Gansu for some reason. Um, and it was a guy a guy called Hong Xiu Chen that was leading the Taiping Rebellion. And so Hong Xiu Chen, he was an interesting man. He was well-educated. He was privately educated. He was, in fact, a teacher. And he tried to be a civil servant. Have you heard have you heard of the civil service examinations they're a big deal aren't they they're a big deal the imperial examinations they're, they've been going on in China for 2000 years they're the oldest examination in the world and probably the first examination of its type ever um, so Hong Shao Chen he wanted to pass these exams so he took the exams and he failed them and then he took them again Following you, you failed him again. You're thinking to yourself, You'll give up there don't wouldn't you? Probably, probably yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably. But he took him a third time and you're thinking, He's a go getter, he knows what he wants. Fail him again. Fail him again. Yep, third time. And he's and he had a nervous breakdown.
0: You'd be thinking at this stage for a man who's so well educated that
1: he'd go and do something else. There's probably other avenues open to him.
0: Absolutely, yeah,
1: yeah, for a man of his ilk. Like. But I think it was just embedded in his head that that he was to be working for the empire, you know. Um, but he had a nervous he had a nervous breakdown, um, and he started to see visions. He went delirious. He saw himself um, in a place which he thought of as heaven. Um, and he, he he saw himself conversing with God and conversing with this man who... He so lit. he was becoming a bit of a holy man. He was becoming a bit of a holy man, yeah. Um, So anyway, he got better. Well, relatively better. And he took the exam a fourth time. Guess what happened? He didn't fail, did he? He did fail. Oh, no. It just was The wasn't. shame. The shame... The shame. So what he did was he went across China and he started to preach against Confucian values. In one of his visions, he had seen Confucius in heaven being tortured by. Um, basically, he was in heaven being tortured, um, and he said that Confucian values had brought down China and that it led he he was completely against the prostitution and the opium and the gambling that all went with it and I, I, a lot of people were came to his side you know and then he came in touch with christian missionaries and through the pamphlets that he was that he read um he came to be convinced that the people he saw in heaven was actually God and Jesus, Jesus being his older brother and part of his heavenly family, which is separate to his earthly family. Um, he, so he was going a bit crazy. He was going a bit crazy, yeah. He he lost the plot and he thought that Jesus was his older brother and you know, but people came, came to his side because he was against the gambling and the prostitution and the opium and everybody was so he wasn't it. alone in all this he wasn't he alone in all of this Disci- he,
0: would you call him disciples or did he he had a lot of disciples? disciples yeah
1: and people rallied to his cause and he, he 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 set up his government from Nanjing which is where the Treaty of Nanjing was signed yeah, obviously yeah. Um, and the, the British they, they saw that this Nanjing, Wuhan and Zhoujiang they were closed according to the Treaty of Tianjin so they thought to themselves "Well, how do we get it open how do you get it open, you finish the rebellion how do you finish the rebellion well they have the boats they have the guns and so they embargoed Taiping um, now remember this war cost 30 million people their lives and 30 million people more their homes
0: so how does that compare 30 million people
1: it's bigger than this, bigger than the first world war that's huge it, absolutely enormous it's one of the biggest rebellions in human history it, it is the biggest civil war in human history um, it's one of the biggest wars full stop in, yeah. fu- in yeah. human history um, like I say it's bigger than the second world war but the British and the French and the Qing Empire they embargoed they embargoed Nanjing and they didn't have any food to eat but of course um, that wasn't going to stop Hong Shou who had his heavenly family at his side and had a vision that they were providing, his heavenly family was providing him with manna from heaven that being weeds in the gardens yeah and that's how he died <laughs> the irony of it all the irony of it all he died eating weeds from the garden of the royal palace in in nanjing and that was the end of it. something of a, an anticlimax a bit of an anticlimax all right yeah um so the embargo the embargo worked the taiping yeah, rebellion yeah. was over and that opened up Wuhan, Zhoujiang, and, uh, and of course, Nanjing itself. And, of course, returning to the the
0: Treaty of Tianjin, uh, it was one of the unequal treaties, uh, these being a series of treaties imposed militarily by the Western colonizing powers on the countries of the Far East, not just in China. Um Now, the Treaty of Tianjin violated the sovereignty of the Qing Empire and further emptied the state coffers, worsening its trade deficit to the benefit of the British. Not only that, but they had to pay reparations to England and France. All in all, a highly exploitive treaty. Yeah. Another one of these unequal treaties, which we'll briefly mention, was the Jifu, or Yantai, Convention of 1876, which gave extraterritorial privileges to colonial powers such as outlawing certain forms of taxes and opening a number of new treaty ports in the upper Yangtze region so long as steamers had succeeded in ascending the river so far and this is what we'll touch upon next the race to Chongqing now the first steamboats to circulate on the Yangtze River were armed vessels which supported British troops during the first opium war between the UK and China. But the focus was now shifting to using these boats for commercial purposes. The prize, of course, the upper Yangtze region, mainly the Sichuan and Yunnan provinces. We mentioned how many foreign merchants viewed the expansion of the 1860 Treaty Port Network as one solution to the problem of finding profitable business in China. And now the belief was that money was to be made in China's interior. Sichuan, during this period, was relatively well off. Its population was able to afford some foreign imports, but the province was also fairly self-sufficient and, in terms of opium, the distribution and sale of opium was virtually an all-Chinese business. Sichuan was at an advantage as it had rich, fertile land in which opium was perfectly suited for cultivation. It was an ideal winter cash crop for farmers and was worth two to four times the value of wheat grown in the same area. Yunnan, too, became an exporter of high-grade opium, so it was no surprise that the colonial countries wanted to tap into these fruitful resources. Opening up the ports in the upper Yangtze region was one thing, but navigating your your way that far up river was a whole other animal.
1: And we must remember that we're not talking about the same Yangtze River anymore. The river was 100 metres lower than it is today, And navigating it took skill, it took courage, it took a lot of luck. The three gorges section of the river was 100 miles long, at least. It had strong currents, had more than 400 rapids. The river also changed between summer floods and dry winter. And in a dry season, reaching Chongqing from the city of Yichang could take months. Ascending the rapids, it needed manpower onshore and off. Hordes of men assisted by rickety old junk boats, pulling these boats by rope through the treacherous conditions.
0: Now, let's come back to Chongqing. At the time, Chongqing was part of Sichuan province, and both it and Chengdu were its leading cities. While Chengdu was the province's political, military and administrative centre, Chongqing was the commercial hub. One of the conditions in the Jifu Convention Agreement was that British merchants couldn't open establishments or warehouses in Chongqing, as long as steamers couldn't access the port. But that all changed with the coming of a man called Archibald John
1: Little. Okay, Archibald John Little, he came to China fairly early, and he was tasting tea for a German company, and. He heard about the Jifu Convention, and he wanted to get a steamship up the river. And he started with a He, he tried for the first time in 1889. Uh, he applied for the permit in 1885. He t- tried for the first time in 1889 with a, a steamship called the Kuling. And it was a 500-ton paddle steamer, the type that you'd see on the Mississippi or something like that. It was a big boat. Um, but the, the Qing dynasty, they were pretty scared of this boat because it was a, a bit of a beast. And they made uh, restrictions on the travel of it. They, say, they said that it could only travel for two days a month between May and October. And during the day, it couldn't travel at night. And when push comes to shove, the whole trip was set to take about 16 months. And this just simply wouldn't make any money. So Archibald John Little, he gave up halfway and he sold the cooling and he made a tidy profit on it. Um, but he wasn't done. He knew he could do it. But he needed to do it in a, in a different way. And so he came up with the idea of bringing the Lee Tran. The Li Tran was a nine-ton paddle steamer, so it was much smaller. And in 1898, with the help of Many trackers and a lot of lot of luck and good fortune and skill. He he brought the Li Tran up into Chongqing, and that was the first steamship that had ever been seen in Chongqing. Now, it took months. It took a long time. So, the Kooling wasn't going. To, it wasn't going to make any money. The Li Tran wasn't going to make any money. It, it was nice to say that you you had done it but you can't make any money if you can't get up and down the river easily yeah so he went back to london um he was from manchester but he went to london uh, i assume he went to have some tea <laughs> um or maybe you know have tea with somebody as you do yeah or drink some tea or smell some tea I mean any any discussion of the sort requires tea it requires tea and could maybe be, a pastry could be a long discussion yeah and Captain Cornell Plant also liked tea and he met Archibald of course he did of course he of course lived. yeah also also liked tea and he met John Little and Cornell Plant had previously traversed the Tigris and the Euphrates River uh rivers And he convinced, John Little convinced Cornell Plant to come back to China with him. And together they designed and built the Pioneer, which was a steamship, and it managed to get up the river unaided from... The, the the lower Yangtze to the upper Yangtze through the three gorges. So is this a, a steamship in the same vein
0: as the the Lichuan,
1: it, but, was but bigger. it was a steamship. It was it was more a, powerful at comparative size, but it was able to carry five hundred tons of cargo. Okay, so it was built to go up and down that river and carry cargo and a lot of cargo. So it's a far stronger vessel. Yeah, and it was a it was a piece of it was an engineering masterpiece and in fact when they got to Chongqing the Boxer Rebellion was in full flow and it was actually taken by the Royal Navy and used as the Royal Navy headquarters on the river Um, so they never actually got to make any money off it Uh, which is kind of a bit sad but at the same time you know, it is what it is he got the money for it Um, and he continued to live in Chongqing, and he he built other ships, and he went up to Tibet. And you know his his wife, who is also a very interesting woman, we might talk about her another time. And Cornell Plant actually started working for a Chinese company, uh, the Sichuan Steam Navigation Company. Okay, and he started he designed a few boats for this Chinese company to allow trade from the. Upper to the lower Yangtze River yeah um and they loved him they loved him he, he facilitated trade and he you know he was just this he was a sailor basically he was a sailor who was very good at his job and if you go to the Shiang or if you go to Shiang which is by the Taihu lake west of west of Shanghai you'll see there's a 10 meter tall obelisk. And that 10 metre tall obelisk is actually devoted to Captain Cornell Plant. Oh, wow, wow. He managed to take the so he's journey. He's well remembered then. Yeah, he's well remembered. Mm. He managed to take the journey time down to six days upriver and two or three days downriver. And remember, that's about 2,000 kilometres. So that's not bad. That's very impressive
0: in such a, a short space of time Yeah to, to make those gains Yeah, absolutely because when we talk about the Three Gorges area you know a lot of people will be familiar with the dam the Three Gorges Dam Yeah, the
1: Three Gorges Dam is just a each hung there, yeah Yeah a, a treacherous part of the world It's one of these places that is absolutely amazing on your right and your left side you have 90 degree vertical cliffs that seem to go on forever it's it's quite stunning to look at it's stunning and if you can imagine being back a hundred years ago if you can imagine being back thirty years ago yeah this gorge was much much taller it was massively taller and if you ever see it you'll see that it's a perfect place to put a dam you know? Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just perfect. It's just a, a a huge, huge, huge gorge that you should still go and have a look at because it's still there. It's just a hundred meters shorter, mm. still another couple of hundred meters to the top, and it's still incredibly impressive. And if you ever see if you ever see the Three Gorges Dam itself, it is a masterful piece of engineering it's a it's a huge huge construction
0: yeah hats off to everybody involved yeah in putting if, that together
1: if you need something big ask the Chinese yeah you've got manpower they've got the manpower they've, and, and the materials they've got do the do manpower so. and the materials you know they've focused on primary industry if they if they need steel they've got a, you know so yeah around
0: the around the turn of the 20th century Two to four million teals, which was the local currency of Chongqing at the time, or of Sichuan, uh, two to four million teals worth of opium was passing down through Chongqing's foreign customs every year. That's that's, a bit, that's quite a lot of it's money lot of at money. the time. That's yeah, a lot of money. Yeah, yeah that's a fortune. Yeah. Um, so what we want to do now is wrap it up with the French um, and their kind of role in all this or... Yeah. This, is, this is why we, we were talking about were it in, in the it, yeah. first place. Um, as we said at the top, we, we discovered that there was a French naval barracks here in Chongqing. Um, why was it there? How did it come to be there? Well, in 1901, the Olri, which was a French gunboat under the command of Lieutenant the Vassal Emile Horst, was dispatched for a cruise up the Yangtze River to Chongqing, where it arrived on November 13th, 1901, thus becoming the first French gunboat to reach the upper Yangtze River. A year later, a French naval barracks was established on the southern bank of the Yangtze River for the sum of 100,000 francs, an investment made by the Indochina governor, Paul Dumer, later to become president of France and to this day the only president to die by gunshot wound. The French naval barracks acted as a control and material supply station on the Yangtze River and also served as the French consulate during the Second World War. And that's why there is a French naval barracks nearly 2,000
1: kilometres inland in the city of Chongqing in China. And it's a, like this is not going to be always about history. This is a story when we went out for a walk and we saw this and we wanted to know why and we encourage you to go out and have a look at your surroundings you'll never know what, what you'll find be a bit inquisitive ask another question yeah it's worth the walk it's definitely worth the walk so that's all for this episode
0: of the China Podcast we've had loads of fun putting all this together we have indeed it's been a bit of work but totally worth it absolutely we've uh, learned something we learned a lot. Yeah. We learned a part of history that I never thought I'd be interested in. Yeah. Or and it is interesting. Imagined reading about. Yeah. Just something that I, I would have skimmed over. Yeah. It's something you walk past and you go, oh, look, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a nice boat.
1: Yeah. What's Mo- that Move moving? on. Move on.
0: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we hope you've enjoyed listening and we'll talk to you next week. Toodles. 你看熊哥就吃慢多亏